Hello, everybody, and welcome to Truth Be Told. I cannot believe we are here. This is my final episode of my walk through Israel and also Jordan, which is what we're going to be going through today. Um, when you start a series like this, you know, I've never done a series that lasted this long. And when you do something like this, it kind of becomes the identity of the show, which on one hand is really cool because you can deep dive and the people that really love it, really love it. And they always get, you know, more content in the same vein of the things they're enjoying. But on the other hand, it'll be nice to get back to regular content because the beauty of theology and apologetics and biblical study is that there's so much uh, depth of topics uh, that are available to you that anybody can find something they enjoy. And so um, I know that I've got like a select few listeners that really, really have loved this. seems like every time I get about the same amount of downloads and listens um, on the Trip Through Israel series. And so I hope that for those of you that were listening for that, you will also continue to listen to the stuff I put out regularly. And for those of you who have been listening along but kind of waiting for the series to be done, well, today's the day. This is the last episode. Then we'll get back into some regularly scheduled programming, I guess. Um, I've got a lot planned uh, for episodes in the future, and we're going to still try to stick to once a week. So that's something really good that's come out of this is um, just sticking to once a week episode um, upload. So that's really cool and something I hope to continue on with. Before we get started, I did want to mention one last time that there are pictures in the description. So wherever you're listening, you can go click the description. There's a show more button wherever you're listening at. And there should be a link as you scroll down uh, that has pictures and videos. So you can walk through the trip with me. It's the exact same pictures I'm looking at as I'm uh, going through this series. And so it gives you a good idea of what I'm seeing and uh, the descriptions do, you know, they do something and I think that they're worth giving. Um, some people don't like looking at the pictures or don't have time or whatever. So the descriptions are good and I'm trying to be as uh, visual as possible as I describe things, but the pictures just offer something a little bit added. And so those are there as a resource to you uh, that you can avail yourself of if you'd like. So on this day, we are leaving Israel, and it was wild. If you listen to the previous episode, you know that uh, we were kind of in the midst of these attacks on Israel. We were in Jerusalem, which was kind of a benefit because a lot of the attacks were uh, to the southwest of the country, and we were kind of in like the eastern portion of the country, more towards the northern middle area. And also just being in Jerusalem was really nice because um, whether it was Muslim extremists or the Jewish people that were fighting back, um, nobody had really any vested interest in doing damage to the, the sites that are in Jerusalem. And so there were people that did hear explosions. There were people that did see um, even like streaks across the sky where they believe missiles were at. Um, but no, no real damage was being done to Jerusalem because this is a site that is so important to so many different cultures, so many different religions that there wasn't really, um, heavy attacking of this area. So we were very safe, even though we could hear stuff, it was kind of wayward missiles and the iron dome, um, which is the defense system of Israel really, really was, um, doing its job. It was working very well. So we could hear things, some of us, but none of us really felt like we were in too much danger. The most 
danger I think we felt we were in was after the day of the attacks, we kind of went back to our rooms and at least me and my dad were in the hotel and we turned on the news. And that's probably the worst idea to turn on the news when you are the subject of the news. Um, I don't recommend it because everything was conflated and it just, I mean, it's not that they weren't speaking things that were true, but they're also, you know, they're trying to spin a story and they're trying to make it just a lot bigger than it was. And they're not really doing their due diligence to like give detailed accounts of like where things are exactly. So, and, and some of it was, they just didn't know all the information at this time. This was still early on. And so we had people from home texting and calling like, are you like right in the middle of this? We know you were in Tel Aviv at one point, but we don't know, you know, how close you are to that. Cause there was a, um, a hotel in Tel Aviv that went down. It wasn't the one we had stayed in, but, um, people knowing that we were at least at one point in Tel Aviv and not really being able to follow our trip, you know, play by play, were nervous that we were like right in the line of fire, but that wasn't the case. Um, some of them did have some cause to worry because Tel Aviv was the airport that we were supposed to fly out of. And so, uh, some people weren't scheduled to go on the post trip towards Jordan. And so they were just like, you know, kind of thinking, how am I going to get out of here? Like, are they closing down the airports? Can I make it out with like one last wave of, uh, people fleeing and they, they just weren't sure. So everything was kind of up in the air, whether you were going to Jordan or trying to get home, um, because of all this chaos, while we weren't in any danger, it was really hectic to try and figure out for everybody. Um, some people had their flights canceled and some people were able to make it out. We had a few that were able to make it out just in time. And so they got on their flights. Now they, they, I think they still had to fly around Israel. So they went to Tel Aviv, then flew, um, like they weren't allowed to, we weren't allowed to fly in Israel airspace, or I guess that wouldn't have mattered in Tel Aviv because you're already on the Western side of it. So you're flying over the Mediterranean and out. So I guess they were okay, but there was a lot of commotion at the airport, a lot of uncertainty about whether or not they get on their flights or be able to, or whether things were completely grounded. And it really depended on who you flew with. Um, I know like, um, Israeli flights, they were still running, but some of the American flights were not. And so it just, it was really hectic, really up in the air, really respected the work of the people that organized the trip because they were, they were doing like triple and quadruple duty sometimes just literally sifting through every single person's travel plans to try and see the best way to get us out. Um, there were some people that were not scheduled to go to Jordan and they, couldn't get out because their flights were canceled. And so they had to stay back at the hotel in Jerusalem. And I know they were really upset. I mean, they, they felt like they were being left in a war zone because at this time we just, we just didn't know a lot and, um, it ended up working out for them. We'll go over that in just a little bit, but, um, it was, it was very chaotic and all of us were just trying to be the least, you know, part of the problem while still trying to figure out how we're getting out of here. Now, as for my part, I was mainly just concerned that we wouldn't be able to get into Jordan. It's not like I was desperate to leave Israel or anything. It's not like I was fleeing uh, for my safety. I just, I didn't know if the border would be closed. And we didn't know at this point that we were told, go ahead and pack as if your plans are just moving along as they should, but we'll let you know if anything changes. And so we were literally hour by hour, um, just not sure if we could make it out. And so we, 
um, those of us who were going to Jordan said our goodbyes to people, um, tried to keep updated with the people that were trying to fly out to see if they made it. And we were also trying to rebook our own flights because what was originally going to happen is we were supposed to take a smaller carry-on bag over to Jordan with us. That would just last us like three or four days. And our main suitcases would stay in Jerusalem. Then they would be transported to Tel Aviv where we would then meet up with our luggage to fly out of Israel. But with the way things stood at this point, we weren't sure if we left. Well, first of all, we weren't even sure if we could leave. So we might get to the border and they turn us back. That was one possibility. Uh, Another possibility is that we could leave, but we couldn't get back in. And so we'd have to leave all of our stuff. And that was kind of a concern as well. And so we just didn't know what was going to happen. So they decided we're going to take all our suitcases and luggage with us. So we had um, carry-ons packed, but we had our suitcases that we still had to keep track of, which ended up being uh, a little bit annoying, but not terrible by any means. Uh, A little bit annoying for something that happened at the border itself that we'll talk about next. Uh, But as we're driving, so we, we leave our hotel with all of our stuff, not sure if we can get back into the country at all. I'm not sure if we can even get out of this country and we drive south and we have a couple hours in the bus um, driving south because there's even though Jordan borders Israel like they share a pretty long border. There's only two main entrances uh, in between the two countries and that's one at the northern border and one at the southern border and we were driving to the southern border um, going through Eilat and then across um, like, so, so past the Dead Sea and then, um, even farther down, like close, closer to the Red Sea, or at least the Gulf of Aqaba, which is kind of one of two prongs that goes into the Red Sea. So you've got, uh, the Red Sea at the bottom of Israel. And then from that, there's two prongs, one that goes, uh, off to the West and that's the Gulf of Suez. And then one that goes off to the East and that is, the Gulf of Aqaba, and in between those, that landmass there is um, uh, the Sinai Peninsula. And so we couldn't see the Red Sea, but and we couldn't even see uh, the Gulf of Aqaba based on where we were, but we were right in that general area, down at the very, very tip, uh, the very southern tip of Israel. Um, I think if we had gone like a mile more, we would have seen the sea, but we were just kind of more in the city area trying to cross over. And so on this whole drive, though, we're not, I mean, we, we drove through the mountains down into the desert area like we did in days past, but then we just went, continued going south. Um, so we finally figured out the meaning of Dan to Beersheba because we actually passed Beersheba, um, which normally is a biblical indicator of the far north part of Israel and the far south of Israel. But um, we even went farther south than that. And this whole drive was not spent enjoying the scenery, was not spent, um, you know, talking about where we were going. It was a lot of people on the phones trying to just figure out, can we get over the Jordan or sorry, can we get over to Jordan and can we, well, I guess we do cross the Jordan river technically. Um, so can we cross over to Jordan and how are we going to get home? And they recommended that we try and change our flights out of Amman, Jordan. And I know for a lot of people, um, because the the plan was to go south through Israel, 
cross over into Jordan, and then make our way up north through Jordan, and then end our trip uh, in Amman more towards the north. And so I know for a lot of people, this didn't work out so well, because transferring flights that quickly, um, even though it was kind of a, a really critical situation, and like we had no choice, um, a lot of airlines were like, well, we're going to put the fault on you for now, and then later we can kind of work that out. And it was just on every individual to try and like make everything work. So you have to like petition the airline and be like, I'm not just canceling my flight. There's literally a war going on. So get me out of here. Um, so some people had a really, really hard time of it or the flights that they found out of Amman, they, they couldn't refund their flight and just transfer the money over to that flight. They had to pay for both. Or some people could transfer their flight, but the one out of Amman was a lot more expensive, and so they ended up paying so much more. I felt really bad for all these people, and honestly, I wasn't sure how that was going to work out for me and my dad. We're both on the on the line um, with the airline, trying to find a way out. And you know, like my dad, he would. We're also. I, I mean, I got to mention we're going through desert, so it's not like there's cell towers and satellites. Um, just with ready access. And so my dad was on the line with them, goes on hold for 40 minutes, and then the phone cuts off because we lose, we go through a dead zone, we lose service. I was going through an online route trying to find things, but I needed information from my dad, and he was rose back. So it was just a whole chaotic mess. And in the midst of all of this, several people on the bus are starting to not feel well. Like we had just run ourselves to the point of exhaustion and I think it was all starting to catch up with us. Um, so there was people coughing and just like feeling like starting to feel kind of sick. And I was one of those people. Fortunately, my dad felt okay, despite being a little bit stressed. He would end up feeling worse than me in a little while. But um, for this leg of the trip, I was grateful that he was feeling well because he was able to get the flight secured. And while I feel so bad about this because so many people struggled, we actually ended up um, getting a $10 credit on our flight because the flight from Amman back to Columbus was cheaper than the Tel Aviv to Columbus flight. So it worked out not only financially, but then also it broke the trip up just a little bit. So rather than having it be, um, I think we did like 10 and a half hours and like back to Canada and then like one and a half back to Columbus. Instead, this was taking us through Austria, which then made the following flight, like our long leg of the journey, only like nine or nine hours and 15 minutes or so, which, okay, that's only like an hour or so difference, but that is kind of huge when you're on a plane for that long. So I was really grateful. And then it ended up even being better because we flew through Air Austria and that was just an incredible airline. So um, we really, really were blessed um, with just an ideal situation, but it was kind of stressful still to try and get it all figured out. And other people did not have it so easy. Um, interestingly, by the end of the trip, most people that uh, left, you know, we I mean, we did all get out. I'll spoil the ending. We got out. But most people that left look back and they'll still say that they would go back. Like they would do the same trip again, even, you know, if they knew the ending, with all the stress, with all the chaos, with all the uncertainty, they'd still go back and do it again. So that was really, really cool. And I'm grateful that people had that response. Um, so we're, we're driving through the desert, going south, and we stop in Eilat just for lunch. Um, and we, we got there, and it was, man, so, so, so hot. We were 
really, I mean, me and my dad especially were just getting nervous for Jordan because we're thinking if this is the level of heat, you know, we were just in Jerusalem. We got used to these these higher temperatures and that's also, or sorry, these lower temperatures. And that's also why people are getting sick, um, at least according to what the guides were saying, because you have, um, you've got this hot weather that you're in for the first portion. Then you go to Jerusalem, it's a little bit cooler weather, but even then you're on the bus and off the bus so often that you're going from extreme heat to air conditioning. And then, um, in Jerusalem, you're going from air conditioning to um, just like the outside, right? And there's a lot more people, so a lot more things can spread. And so it's just kind of a recipe for sickness after a while. And we had been traveling for a long time. Um, so yeah, going into Jordan and going south into Israel was just hotter and hotter and hotter. And as we're getting more and more sick, I'm just thinking, oh, this is going to be really a push to the finish to see if we can make it through this with any sort of positivity. Um, but we stopped for lunch and for the most part, people were not concerned about eating. We, we didn't even have much time. We kind of were late. And so we get there and they weren't really ready for us. They weren't ready for the numbers that we had. And so I got like some bread and some salad and they took my order, but then we had to go because we were on a time crunch and it was like, you know, we don't know what's going to happen at the border still. So if we're late for like, so basically what happens is you set a meeting point at the border to say, we are coming at this time and you have to be there for your meeting time. Otherwise you're not getting in. They're going to let other people in ahead of you. They might take you, but in all the chaos and commotion, if we were late, odds were good. They were not going to let us in. So despite really not having lunch, um, but grateful to have the time just to try and figure out our flights um, in a space that we weren't moving into dead zones and out of dead zones, um, we just kind of piled back on the bus. Nobody really cared that much about eating. We just wanted to get to our final destination and then hopefully by the time we got there, all have a way back home at some point. Um, but we did uh, get on the bus and get to the border and once we were there, I was like, okay, this is actually happening. Like the, the people that were planning a trip got off the bus and they checked with people and it's like, yes, we're still open. Yes, you can still get through. Here's the procedure. Here's the protocol. Here's how you do this. And we were off. And so I was really, really grateful for that. Now it was interesting because we couldn't take the buses we were on uh, from Israel into Jordan. Not only could we not take the buses, we couldn't take our guides with us. We couldn't, I mean, we only could take ourselves and our luggage. And so you get off the bus and you've got to walk. Um, they say it was about one football field, but in the end, we probably walked about two football fields away to try and cross the border and you've got to walk it. There's no, there is no transportation across and it kind of feels like a prison to be totally honest with you. And so we get our luggage, we get these little cards that we're supposed to present to the customs people and we're off. We're just, we just start walking and, you know, I'm going to explain this because I, it seems like a, like a mundane fact, but I think it's really important to the story overall. In my mind, I'm thinking I want to be the least bit of problem I can for anybody. I don't want to be a problem for the people organizing this. I don't want to be a problem for the, the border security. I don't want to be a problem for the people around me. And the way that I thought to do this was just to kind of move quickly and efficiently and uh, just try and get through as quickly as possible. It's like, okay, if I worry about myself and not so much everybody else, now I got to worry about my dad too, and he's got to worry about me, but just in a more cursory way, not like 
physically or logistically. I'm just thinking I'm going to get through as quickly as possible. And if I can do that efficiently and everybody is responsible for themselves, then we can all move through in an orderly way and it's just all going to go well. And so what this meant is I was one of the first people in line at the border crossing itself and at customs. And ultimately, this was kind of a thing that led to my downfall and a problem for everybody uh, because we get up there and we, we turn in our little, they handed us a card and um, we're supposed to walk through and show them the card and it basically just outlines like the trip we've taken, who we are, um, and the fact that we're legally allowed to enter into the country. And so this was like the first step. We get this little card, we show it to the people, and we keep on walking. Now, as you're walking through this like prison, almost like a prison wall kind of thing, you walk through one, then there's this wide open space of pavement, and you're just walking straight across about a football field in length. And in between, there's like a a, um, duty-free shop, which... I don't know why. I mean, of all the things that I'm thinking about at this time, when I'm crossing over from Israel into Jordan, it is not about like a Toblerone or whiskey. It is, I just want to get across. But they had this stop there, and it's kind of good that they did because it was slightly air-conditioned and at least out of the sun. So people would stop in there um, as they're waiting in line, and it was kind of a brief reprieve. But there's nowhere to sit. Uh, You're just standing in the hot sun. And you're walking across to get into this like main building where they run your bags through like a security check. Now, I don't know if this is typical. I've been told that it's not, um, but I'm not sure if like the aggression towards people coming into Israel is typical or if it was due to some of the conflict that was going on in Israel. I, I really can't tell. Or maybe they were just having a bad day, these guards. But me being one of the first few in line, so it's it's like I'm probably like fifth or sixth in line to get my bags through. My dad's ahead of me. And so he gets through just fine. No problem at all. They run his bags uh, through the machine and they check his information and he walks through no problem. Now, a few people ahead of me had shofars sticking out of their bags, their carry-on bags, and then they had a few extra packed away in their main bags. And I mean, what's the big deal, right? A shofar, it's just a a ram's horn. Some of these are made out of legitimate horns. Some of these are plastic, but they're just souvenirs, right? Like we are not Jewish. We are a Christian group. We just bought souvenirs. And so uh, we don't think anything of this, but the Jordan officials stop these people that have shofars sticking out of their bags. And they say, "You, you can't have this. You can't bring this in. There's a whole discussion that goes on. Um, in Arabic that we can't understand at all between this official dressed in military uniform and this official dressed in like, um, well, one is like a, like a high up ranking military uniform. One is just like kind of camo military uniform. There's these, all these discussions going on about, can they have this? Can they not have this? They take it. They take the shofars away out of the room for a little bit to discuss it with someone else. Then they come back and say, okay, you can go. But then the people are like, well, am I going to get my stuff back? Like, did you inspect it? And it's fine. And we don't understand what's going on. What turns out to be the case is that you cannot legally blow the shofar in the nation of Jordan. That is illegal. So you can have it, but you can't blow it. And this is what the confusion was about. This is what they were trying to work out. Um, and they, it did not set them off on the right foot. They were... 
not only arguing amongst themselves, but not very happy with the tourists who were standing in their line. You know, we've got like 70 people here um, trying to get through, uh, maybe even more. And they're arguing back like, well, am I going to get my stuff back? And they do not take kindly to being talked back to, even if it's respectful. They're just like, you do what we say and that's it. It's like they didn't ask for money, but you get the sense that if they had said, give me $5 and you say, I'm not going to give you $5, they'd be mad. Like this is how rigid they are with their security, but also how corrupt they are in their dealings with people. And so you don't question them. You don't you know, you don't even try and clarify what they're doing or what they're asking of you because that's just going to make them more mad. Now, eventually, the crazy thing is they did let these people with the shofars have the shofars back. They just said, you cannot blow them in Jordan. This is illegal. You'll go to prison. And the people said, that's fine. All I wanted to do was just take it back home as a souvenir. That's it. We don't blow the shofar as part of our religious worship. It's nothing to do with that. This is just a souvenir. So they got through then it's my turn. And bear in mind, I'm early on in the line. There's a lot of people waiting behind me in the hot sun. I'm like just barely into the building because there's not a lot of room in this building. So you can't fit like a lot of people in the front entrance where it's air conditioned. So there's so many people standing behind me in the hot sun with angry guards ahead of me. And I'm thinking, okay, well, at least I don't have any shofars. You know, I've, I've really thought about this, so I think I'm fine. Um, And so I walk through. This was a nightmare. They were not happy. And so not only did they check my um, carry-on bag, which they were doing, which it didn't have anything in it. It just had my clothes, right? Because that's what I thought I was going to be living out of. They checked my carry-on bag, but then that my big luggage bag that has everything that I've bought from Israel in it goes through the scanner and they decide to open that up. And I ask, well, what did you see in there that you need to look? And they were not very clear on what they saw, but it didn't matter. Like they don't have to have a suspicion. They can just tell you to open it up. But I'm thinking, okay, this is fine. Like it's not a big deal. They can look through my stuff. I don't have anything to hide. It's just disgusting clothes and some old souvenirs. If they can bring a shofar in, there's nothing I have that they'll take. Um, or be upset about. I was dead wrong. They looked through every inch of my suitcase and my backpack and found every single thing that I had bought in all of Israel. And they decided whether or not I could keep it. And they put the things I could keep in a bag and they put the things I couldn't keep in a bag. Now, fortunately, they took things for me to not keep that were some of the least expensive and I was the least attached to. So, for example, if you've listened through, you know that early on I bought a widow's mite in Bethlehem. And so I had that and I'm thinking, are they going to take this from me? It's not religious. And But at this point, I don't even know what their qualifications are. Is it because it's religious? Is it because it's Jewish? Is it because it's um, has to do with the nation of Israel at all? I just, I don't know what their qualifications are for. So as I'm trying to listen to them and piece together like why they are taking certain things and not other things, um, I'm trying to reason with them on certain things. You know, like, well, that's not religious. Um, for example, at Shiloh, I got a a little container, like a almost like a baby food jar, but it has spices in it. And this is the incense that they believe is the correct recipe that the Levitical and Aaronic priesthood would have used in the Old Testament. So I bought a jar of that. And the man takes it out. He says, is this for cooking or for smelling? 
And I had no idea what he's asking me. And I say, well, for smelling, like I'm not going to cook with it, right? Immediately throws it in the bag of things I have to throw away. I'm thinking, oh, Micah, you idiot. It's incense. That's what he's trying to find. Is this religious or is this not religious? And so I try to say, well, no, no, no. I, I, I'm not going to use it for incense. I, I just use it as a souvenir. But they, you know, broken English, they're not really understanding what I'm saying. They're already mad. They don't care to reason through every article that each person has brought. And so he made a decision and that was it. It went in the bag. Another thing they took, um, I had bought a Jewish prayer shawl, not because I'm Jewish, not because I use a prayer shawl, not because I think it's something that I need to do or even should do as a Christian person, but it was something that was made in Israel. It was beautiful, fine quality. Um, I think it was representative of the people that I had seen there. It had the uh, tzalit, the the fringe on the garments. And I thought that was interesting. I thought maybe I could use it for a sermon sometime. I just really liked it. And so I was going to bring it home and like hang it up or something. Um, but they took that. That was by far the most expensive thing they took. Um, everything else was, was fairly cheap. Um, but that went in the bag as well that I had to throw away. Uh, the spices... They took a necklace that I had bought on the Sea of Galilee. When we went on a boat on the Sea of Galilee, um, they sold like t-shirts and stuff that said, I, I rode a boat on the Sea of Galilee. But they also sold these necklaces that had black basalt rocks. And basalt is, is like a very common rock. It's, it's used in a lot of the buildings around Galilee. And it, it comes from the Sea of Galilee. And they sold necklaces with these rocks on it. And so I bought one. Right in the bag. I don't know what they could have thought that was used for religiously, but they didn't ask me. They didn't ask questions at all. They just threw it right in the bag. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, no, they're going to take all the rocks that I've collected from different places too. And they're going to take the little pieces of pottery that I found. And I mean, everything that I found up to this point, they're going to take. Fortunately, they didn't. They actually asked me, do you have any rocks from Israel? And I said, yes. And they looked in a bag where I kept them all. And they said, oh, this is fine. And so they allowed me to keep that, and I was grateful for that. And the last thing they took was a mezuzah, which is the thing that the Jewish people put on their door frames, and it has um, the letter Sheen on it. And this is representative of the Shema, or the Law, or the Torah. And so as they pass out of the building, or of any room, they um, put their fingers to their lips, kiss their fingers, and then place their fingers on the mezuzah. And this is a, like a remembrance of the law. And it kind of goes in line with what it says in the Old Testament or in the Torah about um, remembering the law as you walk by the way and uh, hanging the commands of God on the doorposts of your house. And so this is what the Jewish people think they're fulfilling by putting these mezuzahs up. They just have either little, the little sheen on it or they have a scroll inside of it. So mine had both. And it just had like um, a sticky backing to it. I was going to put it on my bookshelf. Um, again, not something that I would use religiously or think that I need to have religiously, but something that I it stuck out to me about the Jewish culture and something that I found interesting and wanted to bring home to, to display. And so they brought that out and they said, what is this? And I said, it, it goes on your door. I'm like, I don't know how to explain what a mezuzah is to a person who clearly has never seen one before. Um, and I'm not going to try and tell you it's religious because clearly that's what you're throwing away. And so he looks at it, he says, goes on the door. I said, yeah, it goes on the door. Like it just, it sticks right there. And I held my hands up to show him and they talked amongst themselves. And one person said, oh, it's like a door handle. 
to the other person. And I didn't respond because, I'm again, I'm not going to let this guy know that uh, this is at all used for the Jewish religion. And so they think at first that it's a door handle. They put it in the bag that I can keep. And I'm like, okay, great. Something I can, you know, a little victory for me. Another guy seeing this whole proceeding walks over, takes it out of the bag and puts it right in the bag of things to throw away. So it didn't matter that I had, you know, somehow gotten that one through. Anyone had any misgivings about anything and they were just throwing it away. So they hand me my bag back of things that I cannot keep. And they say, these cannot come into Jordan. I say, okay, I understand. I don't want to cause trouble. Can you throw them away? They said, no, not here. This is Jordan. I said, oh, okay, well, then what do I do? Like, I don't understand. What am I supposed to do? They said, you have to go back to Israel and throw it away. And so I turn around with this bag and I walk through this crowd of people who is so upset because they just, they've been standing in the heat for all this time waiting, not sure what on earth is happening up there that's taking so long and wondering how much longer they're going to be out here in the hot sun. And then they see me come out and I'm trying to explain to them along the way, like they're taking things that belong to the Jewish faith. So you have to either hide them or get rid of them or wear them if they're not metal so you can walk through the metal detector with them because they're not scanning your person or anything. And so I'm trying to warn people as they go that this is happening up there. But I have to walk back along the whole line of people, back across the football field length with people with machine guns on either side facing me, and then cross back over this fence with people that they're sitting there thinking like, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be over here. This isn't how you enter into our country. So I'm already like, suspicious. Fortunately, I met some really nice Israeli guards that had mercy on me. They let me through. Um, it's like they hadn't seen this before. And yet to the Jordanian guards, it seemed like this was something they did every day. So I'm not exactly sure, but they let me through and I handed them the bag of stuff. I said, I just need to throw this away. And they said, well, is there an address I can send it to in Israel? And I said, I don't know anybody in Israel. So no, like there's no possible way that I can you know, do anything with this. And so they, they shook their head and they apologized and said, I'm so sorry this happened, but they took it and they threw it away. So that was my story at the border. Everybody's very curious about that. It was incredibly frustrating, embarrassing, um, and did not really endear me to, to the Jordanian people. So, uh, I have zero plans of going back there because I think the people there are absolutely despicably corrupt and especially the people in charge. And um, we'll talk about why I'm not just a huge fan of Jordan in general um, as we go through the rest of, of this episode. But that was my first interaction with the nation of Jordan. And they're going to treat people like that, keeping old people out in the sun because they think I'm going to bring in a mezuzah. Like, I'm not going to harm people with it, but they don't care. They have no regard for it. And so people that want to say, well, they're, they're people too. It's like, yes, they're people too. And I hope that they realize the error of their ways and, and stop being such absolute jerks to people that are trying to come into their country. Um, but until they do, I don't have any respect for them at all, like zero respect because they showed no respect to me. They showed no respect to Israel who are their neighbors and supposedly their allies. They showed no respect to any other religion, but their own. And I don't think I need to show them any respect back. So yeah, uh, while I look back on that situation and kind of laugh because it was, I mean, it's a, it's a good story to tell. Um, it does honestly leave a bad taste in my mouth about the Jordanian people in general. So not the, not the best experience. 
So I walk back through this line and uh, still not sure what to do, honestly, because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm cutting basically in front of people, although my bags are still on the table. They're not letting anyone else through. They're waiting on me to come back. And so I get back and they're still searching my stuff. He takes out my Bible and he says, you're a Christian. And they all start laughing. I was never more angry than I was in this moment. I wanted to get in a fight so badly with these people, but I knew like, okay, Jordanian border security, unkind, uh, evil, cruel, Jordanian prison. I'm sure that's a lot worse. So I'm keeping my cool, but I said, absolutely. I'm a Christian. And I said, you are not taking my Bible. They said, no, 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 you can keep your Bible. I said, okay, good. They put it back in my bag and I got to go. So the line starts moving at this point, and as people start coming through, the line starts moving quicker. One, because people knew what was coming, and they were able to hide some of their stuff that they brought, but two, um, because the Jordanian guards were getting kind of annoyed, and honestly, some of the people that organized the trip went up to them and said, listen, we've got people out here that are old, that that are in the hot sun, show a little respect, and they, they took them to task, and I really appreciate that. And so the guards were a lot more lenient as people continued to go through. They just decided to harass the first few, and I happened to be one of those first few. So if I had done anything a little bit differently, I might have been able to keep my stuff, but I wouldn't have had the story. So, you know, you win some, you lose some. So I go through, um, and I wait for everybody else. I had to go down the hallway a little bit to get my passport checked out. They were also incredibly rude, um, just checking and double-checking things making sure I didn't have any stamp of Israel anywhere on there because you have a stamp of Israel, then you are not allowed into these other countries, which is ridiculous because you know where I'm coming from. I'm at the Israel-Jordan border, but this is why Israel gives you that blue ticket that they gave me at the beginning of the trip to try and you know mitigate that difficulty. So I still have that blue ticket as a record of having been to Israel, but no stamp in my passport because then you can't go to other um, of the surrounding Muslim countries. So finally, 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 we go through this whole process and I get out into the hot sun again and I'm trying to find my bus and a man comes out from the bus, shakes my hand and says, I'm Muhammad, I'm your guide, which bus are you on? And he gets me on the bus. Now these buses already were kind of a sign of things to come. They were much less nice than the other buses. They had bathrooms in them, which that seems like a nice thing until someone uses the bathroom and then it's a miserable thing. Um, didn't love that. Um, but I was, anyways, I was still just grateful to be through security and actually into Jordan. I was starting to feel sicker and sicker as the day went on and just really, really hoping that I'd feel better. Um, I'd end up feeling a lot worse before I felt better, but I was just grateful at this point to be through security and actually have made it into the country without too many problems. Then after that, it was just an onslaught of people like coming onto the buses, asking me what had happened, you know, everything I lost and kind of commiserating with me a little bit. So that was nice. Definitely a family moment um, with this group of people that you get to know over the course of touring and, you know, shared difficulty. So that was pretty neat. And uh, yeah, so we all eventually made it through security and very few people lost things. I think one other person did lose something. It was a candle that said Jerusalem on it. But other than that, I think everybody got to keep the, their souvenirs. So from here, we had a bit of a drive to get to the place we were staying that night, which was in Wadi Rum. And Wadi Rum is 
essentially this a wadi is something that is like a valley or a gully that is dry except for in the rainy season so it can mean something like river but typically it's a, a dry river and then rum i believe means um moon because it's also known as uh, valley of the moon so i think that's what wadi rum means don't quote me on that i know that's what wadi means but not rum necessarily uh, but this is where we were staying and I will say, as upset as I was at the Jordanian people and not really endeared to the nation itself and not really enjoying the heat, the sights were pretty beautiful. I mean, just gorgeous red rock structures, just hundreds and hundreds of feet up. Um, really, I mean, desert, yes, but also um, just beautiful colors in the stone. And so we drive on and we get to Wadi Rum. And again, as much as I was not a fan of this place in general, Wadi Rum was stunning. I mean, one of the coolest places I think I've stayed um, ever. And it turns out this is a place where they filmed a lot of movies. Um, it looks a lot like Mars. So a lot of space movies are filmed here. The Martian portions of it were filmed here. Um, they also filmed pieces of like one of the Transformers movies here. So it's... it's big place for movie sets just because it is so otherworldly um, but we get here to Wadi Rum and we are told that we're going to be sleeping at a campsite now we don't exactly know what this means ahead of time it could be tents it could be I mean we just have no idea we could be sleeping out under the stars for all we know um, we were hoping that wasn't the case especially me who was not feeling well at all at this point um, but we get there and there's this huge dome um, I mean, huge, like it's where the dining room is and it looks so space-like and otherworldly. And it's just sitting amidst this, like this little outcropping of, of rock structures. And so that was like really cool to see. Uh, you can, you can find that in the pictures, just absolutely stunning, very like modern and futuristic while also being like kind of ancient and of the desert. And so that's the first thing we see and we get our room numbers and I just wanted to go straight back and go to bed, honestly, because I just wasn't feeling well. And the tents we were in were these, it's like you're walking in the sand and there's a uh, like wooden planks in the sand, almost like a little boardwalk. And you walk down these to get to your tents. And the tents are these square canvas green huts. And I'm thinking, okay, well, it could be nice on the inside. You know, so far this looks pretty upscale and it really was. You go inside and there's a canvas ceiling um, that comes up to a point, but there's two really nice beds in there. There's um, kind of like a vinyl wood walling all around. There's air conditioning, there's a bathroom. So there's electricity. I was, I was happy, you know, I was not uncomfortable by any means. And so this is where we slept. We did get dinner and then ended up going right back to bed, um, trying to text people, uh, let them know I'm safe and made it into the country, but really not a lot of service here at all. So that was tricky. Um, and really all we did there was sleep. I was so grateful to be able to sleep. The next morning I took maybe one of the most beautiful pictures I've ever taken um, at Wadi Rum, just of the desert and of the rock outcroppings and of the sun coming up over the desert. It really was absolutely beautiful. But from here, we were going to Petra or Petra, as some people want to call it. And this was really like the highlight of the Jordan portion of the trip. So remember I said we were going to be going from the very south of Jordan all the way up to the north into Amman. 
Um, something to note about as far as like a biblical landscape goes, um, Jordan was home to the Moabites, the Edomites, and the Ammonites. And that is actually um, kind of spoken of in, in, in the fact that the name of Ammon, Jordan, up in the north is Ammon after Ammon or Ammonites. And so you still have traces of this even today. Um, but Moab, the, the Moabites, think of Ruth. She was a Moabitess. Um, Ruth and Naomi would have been in the southern part of Jordan and then crossed over into Israel up towards Bethlehem. Um, so Moab was at the southern portion of Jordan. Edom was kind of in the center and Ammon was up towards the north. So anytime you um, hear those names in the Bible, that's kind of how it's laid out in my head. And so when I hear that David fought the Ammonites, I realized that he had to go either over the Jordan and then up north into Ammon territory, or uh, maybe Ammonites were attacking the northern part of Israel, so we had to go up north. And so it kind of gives you a good little layout when you think about it like this. Um, and so Jordan, uh, or sorry, Petra is in the middle portion of Jordan. And so we were going from the land of the Moabites into the land of the Edomites. And it's believed that these were the people who actually built Petra. And more specifically, it was probably this subgroup called the Nabataeans that actually built the glyphs of Petra. Um, these were kind of associated or related to the Edomites, but still a very distinct group of people. And this is such an interesting group. Um, there's a lot of mystery surrounding them. And this is why, I mean, you have histories written about them, but a lot of people that write about the Nabataeans write more about the legends that they have they have written themselves rather than actual history. They actually show up first uh, in the historical record uh, in like the third century BC. And so it's, it's kind of, they're kind of a nebulous group. And so we know where they were. We know who they were influenced by. We kind of know how they worked and the things that they did, but we don't know a ton about them. They're really kind of an enigmatic group. So some people say that they first kind of got their rise to power around the time of Nebuchadnezzar. So he came in and displaced the Jewish people. And then the Edomites kind of moved out of Edom and took over their enemy Judah's territory. And then the Nabataeans moved up through Jordan and then into the Edomite region. Um, so that's one theory. Some people like Josephus uh, connects the Nabataeans to Ishmael's oldest son. So you got Abraham who has Ishmael, Ishmael who has children and his oldest son, it's believed is kind of the patriarch of the Nabataeans, at least in Josephus's works. And so there's all these different um, ideas about where they came from. They kind of just arrived on the historical scene, did some kind of amazing architectural work, um, worked in trade a lot. And so there's some mention of them kind of on the outskirts of historical society but really didn't make some grand empire or name for themselves. They're kind of like wanderers that do amazing things as if they're an established civilization, but they're spread out over a really wide range of area and nobody knows exactly where they came from or exactly where they went. And so for all this reason, there's this, this profound mystery surrounding the place of Petra 
Um, and then this also leads to some speculation, at least it has in my church, um, about certain verses regarding a place of safety. At the end times, there's prophecy about um, Israel being surrounded or Jerusalem being surrounded, but then people being able to flee. And then it says that Jordan will be spared the edge of the sword. And it's like, okay, so are they fleeing to Jordan? Is this where they're hiding out? And then potentially, if they're going to be hiding out, it's in this place of Petra where it's kind of hidden amongst the rocks and not able to be accessed very easily. And we actually saw this um, as we left Petra, our guide, you know, we, we kind of drove out of this kind of ravine area and then up through like a mountainous area. And we looked down across the valley and he says, do you see those rocks over there? That's Petra, but you can't see it from anywhere unless you are in there actually climbing through the place. And so that's why it stayed hidden for so, so long. It wasn't discovered. I mean, it was discovered and there were people there, but it wasn't known to the modern world for such a long time. It was hidden for about a thousand years because you can't see it from any vantage unless you know exactly where it is and you walk through the, the caverns or the ravines to it. And so uh, this also adds to the mystery of it for sure. And so this is where we were going. This is what we were going to be seeing. And I really don't have a lot to talk about of as far as it goes like being there because most of what we saw is just best shown in pictures rather than descriptions. Um, but I will talk a little bit about it. A lot of it comes from the history we just talked about. Um, but as far as visually speaking, it really was absolutely beautiful. And most people, when they when they think of Petra, they think of the one building, the treasury building. And it's called that because there was this ancient legend that said that Solomon hid a lot of his treasure in this building here. That's not substantiated at all um, through archaeology, but that is that's kind of the main building people think of. But Petra as a site is a huge and sprawling place with a lot of buildings, a lot of carvings, a lot of, I mean, just incredible, incredible work um, to carve these structures right out of the sandstone um, that are in these huge like cliff faces. And so it's not just that building. That was actually only one stop along the way. Um, definitely probably one of the most beautiful and well-preserved spots, but not not the, you know, it's, it's not all that there is to see there. And so you get there and we got off the bus and entered into the build into the, not the building, but enter into the, the park itself. And we just start walking and it's, I mean, it's quite a bit of a walk. You essentially go through, um, kind of a, a deserty kind of area. Then you enter into the ravine portion, which opens out into the treasury. From there, you exit the treasury um, a little bit more through a ravine, opens up into more of a deserty area, and then you kind of end the tour, and then you got to walk back. Now, me and my dad, we um, got, we signed up for they have golf carts. There's all kinds of transportation. So if you're if you're thinking of going and you're like, I don't know if I can walk all that way through the heat and the desert and the unstable ground or whatever, you probably can. It's not a difficult walk by any means. It's just kind of warm. Um, but there are a lot of ways to get through. They've got horses. They've got golf carts. They've got camels. And they've got donkeys. They've got horses that are drawing carriages or carts. And so you can get through it. Um, you just might have to take a couple of different modes of transportation because it's a lot of vendors trying to sell you their transportation. Um, but my dad and I, what we got, we signed up for the golf cart ride back. And what we thought was going to happen is you walk all the way through to the end with about three miles and then you take the golf cart back. 
But what happens is you walk all the way through to the end, then you have to walk roughly a third of the way back, maybe two thirds of the way back to the treasury, then the golf cart will take you back to the entrance. So that's what we signed up for. Um, other people, when they saw how far it was and looking at their own ability, they decided to take horses or camels, and um, that's an option. Apparently, ham- camels can hold up to like 700 pounds without even blinking an eye. I didn't realize that. They have such spindly legs. You know, it's like the thought of me getting up on a camel was just absolute animal abuse. So there was no way I was doing that. But people kept asking me, they're like, no, no, it can take you. It's fine. It's fine. I didn't want to chance it. I could walk. So that was fine. Um, But we walk through uh, the desert area and we're seeing all these beautiful structures and buildings. There's these things called genie boxes, which they don't even know the use for, but they're these square carved out boxes from the rock and they have holes in them. And when the wind blows, it sounds like, um, like voices, um, kind of vocalizing or, or singing almost. So they call them gin or genie boxes um, because of these voices when the wind whistles through. Then eventually we got to the treasury area and it really, it did live up to its name. I mean, when you're walking through this ravine, you can't see very far ahead of you. It's not like, you know, it's got little twists and turns in it. And by the way, when I went, I thought it's probably like, you know, one foot across and you got to squeeze your way through. That's not the case. It's a whole road all the way through this whole place. Um, It's probably 15, 20 feet across in some ways. So there's golf carts getting through. Anybody else can get through for sure. Um, But you you just kind of walk through these rocks that are already beautiful. And you see there's um, stone roads on certain parts of it because Rome actually inhabited some of this area for a while. And uh, they built roads here. So the original roads from like the first century are still intact uh, incredibly bumpy to ride on in a golf cart, but still intact. Um, but then you, it opens up and you know, you can't see anything. You're just kind of walking along this road, taking the twists and turns and then boom, it opens up to this, this wide open area with the treasury building right in front of you. And you're taken back to the first explorers that would have seen this after it remained hidden for so long. I mean, they're just thinking they're going through a beautiful hike in a ravine and then to find this. I mean, you would think you stumbled upon like the find of the century and truly they did. I mean, it is a wonder of the world for a reason, truly a stunning piece. And the reason this is one of the most popular uh, for one is because of the legends surrounding it, but two, it's also one of the most well-preserved. And so it's kind of tucked away in an area that doesn't get a lot of wind. And so it doesn't kick up the sand very much. And so it's not experienced a lot of erosion, but the glory and the splendor that you see of this building, you kind of have to project onto the other buildings that you see that are also magnificent, also beautiful, but a little bit more worn down just because of time and sand and the wind. Um, But we stayed here for quite some time, just taking pictures. The thing I found the most interesting is if you look up a picture of it, or you can look in the descriptions of the pictures I have, um, or the pictures I posted in the description, you look at the building and you think, okay, I can see the front door, I can see the whole building. But when you get up to it, you realize that everywhere in Petra still has a decent amount to be excavated. You're standing at what you think is ground level, but the building goes so much farther beneath your feet. And so there are some places where you'll see a door, like a doorway to a building, and it's only like a foot uncovered, you know? So the whole rest of the doorway is underneath your feet and they just haven't excavated yet. And so 
everywhere you look, you're realizing that you are standing maybe 20 feet in the air of this original city. And these buildings are already huge. And so to think of how much bigger they would be if they were fully excavated is just kind of incredible. And you can see this at the treasury building. You walk right up uh, next to it and they've got a grate in the ground. And you can look down and see how how low the building goes because they have fully excavated this one. Unfortunately, you can't go in. Uh, you can't go into the building itself, but you can see into it. And it really just is absolutely beautiful. And so we walked... Um, we walked for some time. Oh, wow. I actually got this totally wrong. So I'm going to correct myself. Uh, Ammon is in the northern part of Jordan. Moab is in the middle. And Edom is in the bottom and the middle. So Moab's a little bit smaller. Um, so Petra is in the Edomite portion. Um, even though it is still in kind of the middle portion of the country, it is um, Edom is still the southern portion of Jordan. So I got that mixed up earlier. I apologize. But there's a picture of it here. And I don't want to go back and record all this, so um, we're just going to go ahead and correct myself and move on. But from from this um, this treasury building, we continued to walk through, and our guide kept stopping us at all these vendors. And the interesting thing, while I hate you know I hate vendors, I hate just being a, like accosted with different prices and assurances that they're selling me the best quality things. Um, it's interesting because these people are actually descended from the original inhabitants um, when this was first rediscovered. Now, it's not necessarily these are Nabataeans, but the Bedouin people that live here, uh, when this place was discovered, they were discovered to be living here. And so they were living in this area, functioning as a normal society, and the government wanted this area for um, for use. And they, I mean, they're like, this is a, a national treasure. This needs to be shown. This can't just belong to one people. And so they paid all the inhabitants and they said, we'll pay you. We'll build homes for you. Um, completely government funded. They built homes for them and they said, you can come back every day and sell things here, but you can't live here in the buildings. And so a lot of the people you see that are vendors are actually descended from the people that lived here originally. So they count this as their home, even though they have homes outside of the park itself. Um, they're very familiar with the area and the territory. And uh, while I didn't really enjoy interacting with them because they're always trying to like dupe you into buying something that's really cheap. Um, it was interesting to know that history. These aren't just like beggars and charlatans. These are people that yes, are practicing um, cheap sales of, of cheap items, but they actually have a tie to the land. And I think that is, that's really interesting too. Um, eventually we did make our way to the end. We got a brief lunch and tried to fill up on water as much as possible. Cause we had about a two mile walk back. Um, the walk back wasn't nearly as fun as the walk through because you're mostly going downhill on the way through and then slightly uphill on your way back. But we made it back to the treasury, got on a golf cart, and made the most incredible bumpy journey back through these first century Roman streets that are really uneven but still highly functional for being you know, that old. And we made it back to um, the entrance. Eventually, we all got back on the bus and we were driving to a different hotel. And on the way, we saw some really cool things. Like I mentioned, the guide pulled over and showed us where uh, the trail was that led to Petra. And I'll, I'll put a picture of that in the description. Um, but we also saw these mountains that they pointed out. They said, do you see that high one over there? There's a white 
um, kind of a square white box on the top. That is where we believe Aaron's tomb is. So Aaron was buried in the wilderness. And you think about this, it makes sense. Um, Israel fled Egypt, but weren't able to enter into the promised land. And they, they entered Israel from the east. And so they had to cross over the Jordan to get back into Israel. So they traveled up north through kind of this route that we're taking through Jordan. And somewhere along the way there, Aaron died. And um, this is this is where it's believed that he's buried. It's They say it's like a six-day journey just to get up to the top of that place. I would love to do it someday. That's like bucket list hiking for me, despite how difficult it looks. But really, really beautiful things um, all along the way. And we made it to our hotel. Now, we were splitting the group up because a lot of these hotels are a bit smaller. And so one half the group was going to the first hotel, and we were part of the second group going to the second hotel. There actually might have been a third, but I'm not 100% sure. And at first I was nervous about this because I thought, is someone going to get a great hotel and I'm going to get a, a cheap one? But also, you know, I'm not feeling the best. This was actually when I was starting to feel a little bit better. As the day went on, I got better and better and better, but my dad got worse and worse and worse. So by the time we got back to this hotel, he was absolutely down for the count. And we get here to this hotel, and it was one of the coolest places ever. Really just reminded me of ruins um, that had been repurposed and made into a hotel. So you walk through like streets of an ancient city almost, and you can see like these rough walls uh, made of stone. But then you, we walked forever. We were at like the very back of this whole hotel complex and it's all outdoors and you really feel like you're walking through a city, like an old, old ancient city. And we get to our hotel room and you open it up and there's like these archways made of stone. It felt like in the most beautiful sense, I was in a, like a tomb um, not because it felt claustrophobic or dark or dank or anything. It was really beautiful, but we'd seen some tombs that were kind of like that. They're much more like a room than they are, um, just like a hole in the ground, you know? So we enter into the space. I was absolutely in awe of it. My dad was too sick to care. He laid down on the bed. I tried to take care of him as well as I could, but he just wanted to sleep and so um, he, he was conked out. But I took some videos of the room and thought it was absolutely beautiful. It was unfortunate we were only staying there for one night. Um, but that's, that's really all I have to say about that. Just You'll have to see the pictures because they really are stunning. Um, but from there, we, so we stayed the night there, got breakfast the next morning. And then we were going to make our way up north into Amman with one brief stop at Mount Nebo. Actually, I apologize. We had one other stop too. Um, that was to the proposed site of um, historical Sodom. So that we'll talk about in just a minute as well. So this is going to be a little bit longer of an episode, but I think it really is beneficial to get it kind of all done in one fell swoop because not each place, I, I don't have as much information. It was kind of a whirlwind. And so I'm presenting it in the way that it felt, if that makes any sense. Um, but we did continue to drive uh, from this hotel. And it was, you know, again, we're going north this time instead of south through Israel, we're going north through Jordan. And uh, we stopped for lunch. Uh, I don't really have a lot to say about lunch. It was nice to stop. It was in like a Christian quarter of some village. Um, and I got to try this stuff called Zatar, Z-A apostrophe A-T-A-R. 
for people that know food, this is apparently a very common thing. I told like everybody I knew about it and they're like, yeah, I mean, we've heard of that, but it's a spice or an herb and you, what they did was they put it on um, pita with olive oil and then they baked it and it tasted so, so good. It kind of tastes like a slightly more Mediterranean um, Italian seasoning or something like that. It's a mix of herbs and spices, um, but I like to put it on bread. Uh, my mouth is watering just thinking about it. It's so good. And I actually bought some when I got home so you can access it in America. That's really my one note on lunch. Um, not a lot to say. But then we drove for a while more and we got to Mount Nebo, which was pretty cool. This is the site that Moses uh, stood at when God said he couldn't enter into the promised land because he had um, he had spoken to the people of Israel uh, when they were complaining. And he said, do we have to draw water out of this rock for you? And so he accredited uh, something that God was doing with something that he was also doing, taking too much on himself, seeing himself as too much. Um, and he struck the rock rather than um, speak to the rock. He struck the rock. And there's all kinds of prophetic biblical implications for that. Um, you know, the rock being Jesus Christ and giving life, giving water, and you don't have to strike the rock in order to, um, receive that life giving water. Um, you don't strike him again. There's a verse that talks about not crucifying Christ afresh. And so, um, and there's remains no more sacrifice for those who, who attempt to do something like that. And so there's all, all kinds of biblical implications for that. But for this reason, he was not able to enter into the promised land, but God allowed him to see it. And he took him up on a very high mountain and the highest in the region. And he looked over and it says he could see from the Dead Sea all the way up to the Sea of Galilee. And so all the way up to the north. And um, that is some pretty good vision. Now, it's possible this was a miracle. But also when you are up there on Mount Nebo and you're looking out, for sure you can see the Dead Sea. And when we were there, it was really cloudy, uh, very overcast. And so uh, there was a thick haze across the land. And so you're not, you're looking off to the north and you can, you can kind of see where you can see a really, really long way. So either a miracle happened here or it was a very clear day and it might actually be possible that you can see the entirety of the land or it's metaphorical, just meaning that he could survey all the land that was promised from north to south. So either one is is honestly fine with me. But you're up here and there's a church up there. Um, I didn't actually go inside of the church, but they also have here um, a statue of the serpent on a pole, the bronze serpent on a pole. And so um, just kind of hearkening back to some of the events that happened to Israel while they wandered in the wilderness. And I thought that was really cool because it just puts you in the mindset of, you know, when I think of Moses and I think the, of the people of Israel, I'm thinking of the land of Israel. But for so much time, a whole generation of people wandered in the wilderness of Jordan. And so to be in this ancient land and to see these things that kind of bring you back to that mindset, um, I, I think was really, really cool. And they also have this sign up there um, that kind of like surveys the landscape for you. So it'll point off into one direction and say, see, there's the Dead Sea. Over here is where Jerusalem would be. Over here, if you look this way, that's the direction of this. And so it kind of gives you um, an overview of the promised land yourself. And it's just so cool to like survey this whole thing and to stand in the spot where it's believed that Moses himself stood. I think that is one of the coolest things. I really, really love Moses as a character. Um, 
when I was taught about him in Bible college, it was done such in such a good way. It was like you get to know Moses as a person, and then when you uh, when you get towards the end of the Pentateuch and he he dies, you feel like you are losing a friend in a way, and it's actually a, a very sad thing. And so to be on this site of Mount Nebo, where he's looking over into the Promised Land, and soon he would die, and God would um, take care of his body so that it would never be you know worshipped by the people or whatever. This is the land where Moses died and where he saw the promised land and thought ahead to what was coming for his people. It's just really, really cathartic and very, very cool. Um, We didn't spend a ton of time on Mount Nebo. There's not a lot to see, but it was a great panoramic view. From there, we drove a little bit further to get to the proposed site of Sodom. It's also known as Tel Al-Hamam. And, uh, you know, it was interesting. We were there with a man who had dug in this spot before. He's very convinced that this is the biblical site of Sodom. Um, being there, it I guess for me, it just didn't seem like it was destroyed enough for what it's outlined to be in the Bible. And I understand it was built up again, but in my mind, Sodom is a place where it was not only destroyed, but it remained in destruction as a testament to what had happened there. And so when you go there and you see ruins that have been built on top of it, it really had me skeptical and yet some of the evidence that they point to, um, especially like, um, I mean, it's very clear that something cosmic happened here, something from space. Um, there was an explosion that could only happen from either like a meteor strike or something along these lines because there was a blast that happened. So it's believed that potentially there was a meteor coming down. It would have only taken a few seconds. And then somewhere in the atmosphere, it exploded and then rained down fire on this place that was burning so hot that it was hotter than any fires that mankind was capable of creating at the time that it was, it was there. And so you get to this place and there is, um, there's a burn layer and a blast layer. And there are things there that like scientifically indicate that yes, there was something that happened here that destroyed this entire place at one point in time. So it's very possible this is the site of Sodom. It's just when I was there looking around at all the buildings, I'm thinking this doesn't really look destroyed to me. But you can see the burn layer, the blast layer. They found um, bones there. They have found animals sacrificed there. Um, and it's just, it is really amazing what they found. So I'm, I'm having my jury just hold out on declaring a verdict. Um, but it is probably the mo- the place with the most potential to be the biblical site of Sodom. If we can find it, if it's true that Sodom wasn't so destroyed that there's nothing that was ever built on top of it and there is something to find, this is probably the best location or best proposed location for it. So we were there for a while, me and a friend of mine, we looked around because it's interesting in Jordan, the archaeology is to a much lesser degree than it is in Israel. Um, it's just, it's less protected. Like you can jump down into the homes themselves. There's no barriers. There's no um, anything, you know, it's just, it's very roughshod. And so um, we get there and it just, it feels like men with shovels just went out and started digging. And that's kind of what happened. Now, these are sponsored expeditions, but like, even someone like you listening, like anybody could sign up to be one of these people on an expedition. They need help all the time. So it's not like every single person is an expert in archaeology that's going through with a fine tooth comb. They, and a lead archaeologist will get workers or volunteers and they'll go out and just excavate. Um, so there's stuff like piles of stuff just around. So me and my friend, we got, um, each of us got one piece of bone 
one piece of pottery and one piece of marble because the marble is something where it for sure was not from this area. It had to be um, transported in and they would have built with it. And so to us, that was really interesting because it shows like the process of civilization. You know, they're moving huge slabs of marble in and it kind of speaks to the majesty that this place might have had at one point, but then it's ultimate destruction. So that's why we got those things. Um, and that's pretty much all we saw. Now, one story, I'm hesitant to tell it. I'm not really sure if I'm supposed to, um, but it really speaks to the nature of the people here and my distaste for it overall. Well, for one, I just want to say the people here, I mean, you go to Israel and there's a mix of people. There, there are Jewish people, there are Muslim people, there are Christian people, there are non-denominational people, people with no faith at all. But there is a certain respect in the culture for the land and and the buildings and the streets and the city. There's just a respect there. And there's, you know, you can just tell that the nation has been blessed. Um, things are clean. It's not so clean that you can like eat off the streets or anything, but it's clean. It's well taken care of. You get to Jordan and yes, they might be a poorer country. They might have less government assistance to like hire street cleaners or garbage men or whatever, but still on the on behalf of the people, they just don't really seem to have a respect for um, their possessions or their 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 land. And so they just throw trash on the streets and they let their buildings go into disrepair and they leave them half repaired. And it's just, it's, I think it's, it's so much more than just the funds they have access to. It really does seem to be a cultural distinction um, between maybe something with a more Western mindset. I'm not, I'm not trying to be elitist with that, but it's just we do have um, a respect for property. And I think that that comes from a biblical worldview, right? It's like you respect other people's property. You respect your own property. You respect what God has made. And I I think that in the culture of Jordan, you just don't see that at all. And yes, you don't want to undervalue the fact that they do have less money. They do have less government assistance. There's a lot more people at the top of the chain and a lot more people underneath them. I mean, they're operating under like a king's type of governmental system. But really, it's just like, okay, so you have a king. You don't have money. There aren't people coming to like help take out your trash. But does that mean like throw things on the ground? Like, can't you find a place to put it? And so it really does still come down to some of these like base level things that really um, just kind of averted me from the culture itself. Um. So that's that. You can agree with me or disagree with me, but that's just what I saw and kind of what I perceived based on the attitudes of the people towards the space here. But anyways, here at this place, uh, Tel Al-Hamam or, or Sodom, if you would like to call it that, um, we get there and there are, you know, there's a lot of older people with us. And this site is truly a tell. Like it is, there has been not a lot of excavation here. So there's just a huge mound. That's what tell means of rubble and dirt and rocks and you've got to climb up to the top of this to then see the site itself and it was very steep and so perceiving that we had a lot of older people with us this one truck pulled up and said well you know we have this truck we can take people up and so they don't have to walk if they're older or don't feel confident in their legs we said okay that's great so a lot of older people got in that truck they drove it to the top and then another truck came by and said we can take people up too so they did And so we got everyone up to the top, 
But then on our way back down, this second truck apparently was not with the site itself, wasn't with the archaeologist that was with us, um, just was a random truck of people. And there was a policeman in the truck, so you'd think, okay, well, this is fine, like it's safe, it's good. But the older people started to try to get into the truck, and they demanded money, $300, to take them back down the hill. And I just think this really speaks to the corruption of the nation, the ethics of the people. There's a police officer standing right there, and the man actually had a gun on him. Not the police officer, the other guy that was extorting people for money. And I just think that is incredibly telling of the kind of people that we came across here. Now, our guide was a very nice man. Muhammad was a very nice guy, but he was also one of the wealthy people. He has a grove of olive trees and he's got a big house and a lot of kids and he has stable work with tourism. So um, I don't know that we can really look at him as a prime example of the everyday person in Jordan or the attitudes of people towards you. And even him, when he spoke with you, it's not that he wasn't nice, but there was sort of a car salesman vibe to him, just like, he knows that he's getting paid from you, and so he's going to say what he needs to say. I just didn't really love that. But this moment of extortion on old people was just absolutely despicable and just really reflective of all the interactions I'd had up to this point. Now, you might say, well, you didn't meet all the people in Jordan. There's good people there, I'm sure. Yes, I'm sure there's good people there. But you know, Abraham looked over into Sodom. And he said like, well, would you destroy the city if there was just 10 good people? And God said, no, if you can find 10 good people. And yet what happens? Like still the city's destroyed because they're so just debased. And I, I just, I, I don't want to discount the fact that this has kind of continued on into modern times. And this is that connection between ancient and modern again, where they're still very much tied to their roots here. And so not a lot has has changed. Now, obviously there's, there's good parts of it. Yes. I'm sure there's good people. Yes. But the overall culture to paint with a broad brush, which I know you're not supposed to do. I know it's supposedly evil, but you do leave a culture, uh, feeling a certain way about it. And the Jordanian culture was not one that I respected with really any part of me. And this, this just, um, absolutely took the cake. Now, um, he would never want me to mention his name, but one of the people that was, um, in charge of the trip, just quietly paid the man and they took us back down the hill. And very few people actually even knew that that happened, which is why I'm hesitant to talk about it because it wasn't like people were in danger necessarily. He just wanted paid um, and it was taken care of quickly and quietly. But I, I tell it not to dissuade you from taking a trip overseas, not to even really paint the people in a horrible light by any means and not to elevate this person who did the respectful thing and just paid it to quiet the situation rather than taking glory on himself or making it into some panic, you know, this thing that would cause panic. I tell it just to, um, for one, it, it happened, you know, and, and that's, that's true. But two, just to show that this is kind of the overall feel that I took away from the land of Jordan. And we were not treated well at all. And this is just such a stark contrast from Israel. Um, but from here, there wasn't any more incident. We got onto the bus. We all, you know, we, each of us like took the arm of an older person and walked our way down this really kind of treacherous hill, but we did get back on the bus and made our way to Amman. Now Amman is incredibly affluent, very, very wealthy city, very modern, complete opposite of what we had noticed in the desert of Jordan, which was the vast majority of the country. And 
remember, we're not even supposed to be here. So the, the directors of the trip had to find a hotel for us to stay in. And they did not, I mean, man, they did not skimp on anything. It was one of the most beautiful hotels I've ever stayed in. Um, they checked our bags there at the hotel, which I thought was interesting because I'm thinking, oh man, I already made it into the country with half my stuff gone. Am I going to lose the other half of my stuff? But fortunately, they gave our bags back. We got to our room and had some, had a nice dinner and just waited for the next morning when our flight would leave. And it was kind of a an interesting dispersion because people were all leaving at different times. So we woke up um, and we... Um, like all were going on different buses to get to the airport at different times. And so we woke up and we were in a group of about maybe 20 or 30. And it's like, we went from this huge group in Israel to a smaller group in Jordan, now to a smaller group on this bus that was leaving, but still we remained kind of tight knit. Like we saw each other through the airport, you know, to try and make sure we all made it and we're safe. And a lot of us were on the same flight. So that was pretty easy to do. Um, in the airport itself, it was really disappointing because we uh, personally, so I was told you're not allowed to bring anything outside of Jordan that's over a hundred years old. Doesn't matter if you got it in Israel, doesn't matter if you got it in Jordan, you can bring nothing out because they're trying to protect themselves from antiquity thieves and like someone stealing from archaeological sites. So I took a cue from what happened before and noticed that they checked all my luggage, but they didn't check inside my clothes exactly. So I took all the stuff that was old, old rocks, old artifacts, whatever I had found and bought, I put it in the pockets of my dirty clothes. So I figured, okay, they might check my bag, but they're going to find stuff like a book that I had bought or, you know, some more modern things. Then they're going to find some dirty clothes. They're going to have to look inside the pockets of my dirty clothes or wrapped up in my dirty underwear. And I don't think they're going to do it. So that was my way of protecting my stuff. Fortunately, they did not check my bags at all really seems to be at the whim of the person, uh, frustratingly enough. One person, they did force her to put her camera, her film camera, through the metal detector thing. It's like, it's a camera. What are you thinking we're going to do here? Um, but she put it through, and she wasn't given enough time to take her film out. So she was terrified that it had ruined all of her pictures. And they were very forceful, just incredibly rude the whole time. So all of this just compiles into the fact that I will not be going back to Jordan. But we did make it through, we made it to our gate, and finally, finally, finally flew out. Now, we weren't allowed to go over Israel, so our flight was a little bit longer to get into Austria. But let me tell you, Austrian air is beautiful. The seats were more comfortable. Um, we only had like a three-hour flight or so, but the seats were more comfortable. They had more space to them, so we didn't have an exit row or anything, but um, we were able to... Um, just still be so grateful to be leaving and to be on our way home. Still, we didn't feel quite safe. Austria felt a little bit safer. And then from Austria, we flew to Chicago, um, which I had a friend that said, you know, I've never been glad to say that a friend of mine made it to the safe state of Chicago. That's never been a thing I've said because, you know, Chicago's kind of, it's a little bit rough, but considering we're leaving a Middle Eastern war zone, it was much more preferable. So it was really good to land in America. No difficulty on the flight back. Um, we actually had a, a chair between us, me and my dad. So we had a whole row to ourselves um, and the exit row. Nicer flight than it was even coming here. So that was wonderful. All in all, just a beautiful trip back. And I was so incredibly grateful 
to finally see the Columbus airport, which, you know, it's not the greatest airport, but to me it was symbolic of home. So I took a picture of that as well. And that, my friends, completely wraps up our trip through Israel and Jordan. Wow, I cannot believe it. This has been a lot of episodes, the longest series I've done so far. You've all been very patient, but hopefully you've appreciated it all. I really think it is valuable to go through all this stuff, to just paint a picture of the biblical landscape, to encourage you to maybe go there someday and see it for yourself, to pique your interest in learning about the land of the Bible, and to hopefully illustrate some things to you and share some visual information that helps you to be able to see it for yourselves as you're reading through scripture. So thank you very much once again for listening. Thank you very much again for your support and your encouragement uh, in this whole process. Those of you who have listened and been faithful to this series have really been encouraging and supportive this whole time. And that just, it means a ton. So thank you very much. Please stay tuned for um, some more theology and apologetics as we keep on going forward with this podcast. And I'll talk to you guys later. Thank you.